Good afternoon. I'm Paul Carruthers, and I'm the marketing manager. No, I'm not the marketing manager. I'm the communications manager for Moto America, and this is Off Track with myself and my partner in crime, Sean Weiss. I've been told my intro to the show sucks. I don't know how to, <laughs> I don't, I don't know how to fix that yet, but the person who told me that's kind of overly critical anyway, so maybe it doesn't, maybe kind of half sucks, but Anyway, I don't know what else to do other than to, to introduce us and, and, and tell us that, uh, tell you all that we're here to talk about Moto America, um, a little bit of motorcycle racing in general, and even a little bit of life. Both Sean and myself know a lot about motorcycle racing, and I think we're old enough that we also know a little bit about life. How, how are you out there in Ohio, Sean? Good. Hey, I'm doing real well. In fact, uh, you know, happy Halloween a day late. Um, did I'm you still take, in costume. Uh, I, did you take your, your little dog out trick-or-treating? No, we actually tried to hide from trick-or-treaters. <laughs> do you get trick-or-treaters where you live? Yeah, we do actually, but um, mm -hmm. I had to pick a friend up from the airport, and then I went out to eat, and so by the time I got back, it was uh, they were pretty much done. I think adults have ruined the holiday, to be honest with you. I don't mind it for kids, but the whole adult dressing up thing drives me nuts. It's just crazy. Well, Although I did, I did love Cameron Bobier's costume, I will say. Yeah, he did a good job with that. I don't, yeah. I, I don't mind the adult part of it, and I like the little kid part of it. I don't like the teenagers running around with like pillowcases full of candy that they've gotten, you know? Because yeah. <laughs> I, I think they, they sort of fall in that. There's that one group of like, the kids should be doing it because they're kids and that's what it's for. The parents that the adults can do it because it involves like a party and, and what have you. But then there's that in between where they should just stay home until they're old enough to party. That's my thoughts yeah, on those it. Those tweeners ruin it for everybody. It's that, uh, is it the new, the millennial age or is it the X, Y generation? One of those generations is just ruining it for, ruining it for everybody. So, Across the board. Um, yeah. Hey, uh, so I wanted to talk about this guest that we have today. Uh, before we got him on, he, he, uh, and I will say he, he uh, emailed us and gave us a list of topics that he won't discuss. Those are the ones I want to touch. Those are all the ones I think we should discuss. Yeah, <laughs> especially the bottom two that I'm not even going to mention, but I will mention a couple of them and it made me think of something. So number one, he doesn't want to talk about American riders. Number two, he doesn't want to talk about foreign riders. Number three, he doesn't want to talk about racing teams. Four, well, he doesn't want to talk about, I guess I'll call him POTUS. And I will not read five, and he reserves the right uh, to refuse to talk about any other topics. So he's de definitely limited us quite a bit. But it made me think, hey, Paul, do you know this story? Have you ever heard the story about Van Halen and their whole thing about brown M&Ms? Did you ever hear that? I have not, Sean. Okay, well, so they ha used to have this thing, and it used to be uh, a, an urban legend, but it's actually true. Um, he, uh, they, When they put together contracts, they had a contract that would say that when they were on uh, in concert, they had M&Ms backstage, but they could not have any uh, brown M&Ms in the collection. So everybody thought it was just an example of those guys being, you know, uh, prima donnas and all that kind of stuff. But as it turns out, they were actually pretty smart about it. They wanted they had a lot of stipulations in their contracts and they wanted um, people to the people that they were working with roadies and whatnot to read the contract. So they buried this in there, and if if they had brown M and if they had M and M's with the brown M and M's in it served to them, they would refuse it, and they basically said, "Well, you didn't read the contract." So, so, so that being said, have you? So you never heard that story? No, and I just have, and I'm still not sure why. <laughs> I, it's oh, 
Well, it's just it's just to stick people, you know, make sure that people read contracts and stick to them. So we're going to bring our guest on here. Our, our guest is four-time Superbike champ, Josh Hayes. And Josh, I want to start by asking you, you had to sign a lot of contracts in your day. Did you ever put any weird little clauses in contracts or did you ever have strange contracts that somebody or clauses that somebody put in your contract that, you know, were kind of like that, no brown M&Ms or whatever, anything like that? I, I rode for John Ulrich, so I had contracts with clauses that <laughs> there was one that shall not be named clause in the contract. There was, there was a few, yes. And all of them were based on some actual event or experience. So, and next I'm going to say to Paul, uh, the, the, the not knowing where he was going with that story is exactly why all of your one hour podcasts are an hour and a half. And, uh, <laughs> um, Paul yeah, still can't right. remember. Paul's been doing this job for, this is year four and he still can't remember what his job title is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was wondering if that I thought the new one might come with a raid. <laughs> That's it. You might as well go for the money. They they gave you an underling in in Sean Bice and you thought that that was worth a raise, huh? <laughs> well, it, it you know it has made my life a brighter place in which to live. Yeah. Yeah, no matter what happens, Paul, mm. you will always outrank me in Moto America. So you, you got that going for in, you. In, oh, in let's endless source of entertainment <laughs> you know i sort of you know i don't want to talk about teammates again because we beat that horse to death last yeah. week but you know i just got to make sure when they brought him in i just want to make sure i didn't have a faster teammate you know what i mean <laughs> that's, 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 that's right. Uh, so they they made sure that uh, pre-podcast conversation very relevant <laughs> very <laughs> so so josh happy uh day after halloween to you did you do trick-or-treating with uh hawk last night what was the plan i i didn't i did not take hawk trick-or-treating he is 11 months old and i knew that if i took him trick-or-treating it was really for me not for him so and we live in a neighborhood that does not have trick-or-treating we're in an, an agricultural neighborhood it's minimum like two and a half acre and mostly like plantations around us so there's not really any houses to go to and it'd be hey, scary be to walk up to my three gate. Homes. Yeah, it'd be it'd be scary to walk up to my gate at night. I wouldn't recommend <laughs> it to anybody. Plus, every time I check in with you, something's on fire around your area, so that's not good for trick or treaters hey, either. Hey, 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 <laughs> hey! Just you don't have to go there. Well, you don't have to go there. It doesn't happen that often, man. It, no, you know what? No matter where you live, there's something. I used to get picked on about hurricanes. Now I get picked on about earthquakes and fires. You know, <laughs> like everywhere you go, there's something. And all it's doing here. Well, after. All it's doing here is raining all the time, so I think we're going to have to build an arc pretty soon here in Ohio. But go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I would. I was going to say I would take this. Uh, I would take the weather that Josh and I have and a few fires over what you have without fires. I think you're right. Just I guess snow. You're, you, have, you just point at yeah. snow and no mountains, and it's like, well, waste of life. <laughs> <laughs> Must be for bites. <laughs> Waste of life, all there is really, this fucking satellite TV. I don't really know why I live here, to be honest with you guys. I moved here about 20 years ago. One of the reasons was because Wait, the AMA. you moved there on purpose? Yeah, I grew up in New York State, lived in New Hampshire about 15 years, and moved to Ohio for an ad agency yeah. job. But one of the reasons I took it was because the AMA Are you is Amish? here. <laughs> well, and mid-Ohio isn't too far away, but Josh made it so we don't go there anymore. So, you know, that's Josh just... Josh <laughs> made it. Uh... Why did you want to be by the AMA? And I mean that in 
you know, yeah, very in a nice way. <laughs> I have no idea. I just figured, hey, these people, the state of Ohio must love motorcyclists. So, you know, this job came up and I thought, I think hey, it's they, in Columbus. I'll go there. Doesn't uh, Ohio have like the highest number of motorcycle street license per capita in the country or something? Excellent, Josh. Yes, that's exactly right. It is. <laughs> I always said it's a friendly motorcycle state. Per, per You're household. Very, that's very good. Yeah, that's better than the brown M and M's. So nice job. But I was always I was always blown away because you know you go there, Indiana, and and you know safe being so safety conscious with racing. Every time I was driving down the street, it was amazing to me how much it stood out when you saw somebody not wearing a helmet on the highway on a motorcycle. I would just I'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. oh yeah, it's legal here. Sorry. Yeah, no helmet, <laughs> no helmet law here. It's pretty odd. Well, they may they just because they have the most license, it doesn't mean they have the most that are still alive. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, very true. But we're not doing much motorcycling these days because of the crappy weather. So hopefully it's going to change pretty soon. But um, you're so, staying in the bubble, don't they? Yeah, I got a couple of them in a bubble. Yep, they're that they're garage queens. My first bike and my little YSR fifty that's got a hundred miles on it. That one of one of uh, Josh's old crew members, Steve Rounds, swears uh, he wants when I decide to get rid of it, but I probably won't give you it to him. You know, I rode one I mean, to high school, right? You you had one in high school? I rode one to high school, yeah. A YSR 50? <laughs> uh -huh. Did you get your knee down? Yeah, I bought one. I bought one from one of the Air Force guys in Biloxi, Mississippi, and I would ride it. My grandmother lived across the street from the high school, so I'd ride it to my grandmother's house and park it there. I remember one morning... I pulled up to the busiest intersection on the way to school, um, which meant there was like, you know, a stoplight there. And but it, it was like the main drag in town right there. And I remember pulling up to the stoplight and my the loop on my shoelace had gotten wrapped around the shifter. Oh, no. And I went to put my foot out and fell over on a YSR 50 in the middle of the intersection. <laughs> Sitting there waiting for the light. Pretty embarrassing. Okay, you got to answer me this. Was like riding a YSR 50 to, to to high school in Mississippi, was that a cool thing or not cool? I no, mean, oh no, I'm sure oh, it wasn't. <laughs> okay. I, 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 I was, but, but that being said, I was kind of like, uh, I was invisible in school anyway. I was so shy. Um, I, I don't even, I, I bet 10 people remember they went to high school with me. <laughs> Why was that? I was just I was just a shy, quiet kid, and I had gone to private school for elementary school. So then we, you know, when I went and it was time to go to middle school, my parents couldn't afford to keep me and my little brother in private school anymore. So uh, I moved to public high school, and only two kids I knew from school went there. So right. you know, I basically started over and, and didn't know anybody in school, and I was so shy. I re I actually remember in seventh grade. The first time I tried to have a conversation with one of the girls that I that I thought was pretty in school, and I had a couple classes with her and stuff. And the first time I'd ever been to a pep rally or anything like that, I'm sitting in the in the stands in the bleachers next to her, and I just said, "Oh, you don't talk very much, do you?" Or something real awkwardly. <laughs> and she said to me, "Just not to you." So <laughs> I didn't talk to a girl again. I didn't talk to a girl again until after I graduated. <laughs> yeah, that's the next girl. The next girl he talked to was Melissa. Right, and she Nick, well, rides a motorcycle. Yeah. So. Tabitha, Tabitha, my first girlfriend after high school. Uh, yeah, that would have been a deal breaker for me too for a few uh, decades. If some girl had said that to me too, <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> hey, Sean, I got. No, the only reason I go ahead. I was gonna say the only reason motorcycle racing worked for me was because I wore a helmet. You know what I mean? Like I, I was hidden. <laughs> 
you know, like no one could see me, talk to me, make fun of me because I was, I was in my own little world doing my own thing. That's, I think that's one of the reasons why motor, motorcycle racing was so good for me. So I got to ask Sean, Sean, were you, were you a shy kid in high school too? No, you know, I really wasn't. I, I went to a pretty small school in Northern New York. It was a central school K through 12. And we had the, the largest graduating class ever in the history of that school to this day. And it was 78 kids. So you couldn't really be shy. I mean, we still had some clicks here and there, but you know, there weren't a lot of kids. So no, I mean, I, I was actually speaking of when Josh talked about uh, riding his YSR 50, I used to ride my RD 350 to school. And you know, that was, I didn't get made fun of for that too much. Actually, it was okay. So, so but I, I couldn't turn it into a racing career and Josh did. So there's the so big So did difference. you graduate in the top, did Who you graduate thought, in the top though? 70 of your class? <laughs> no, I just have to ask. <laughs> okay. Well, I, the, the reason I asked about if you were shy, because you like to talk a lot and Josh likes to talk yeah. a lot. So I thought maybe you'd, you know, you'd also saved up oh. all the talking you didn't do in high school and, and now put that on us for the rest of our lives. No, I've been like this my whole life, but Josh did have a transformation. He definitely did. I mean, now, he look, he's a well-spoken, popular motorcycle racer, four-time champion, lays around in dollar bills. <laughs> Had an interesting year this we, year, uh, though, Josh, didn't you? I don't know. I guess that depends on what you consider interesting. Yeah, I think he probably. <laughs> well, it wasn't. <laughs> I think he kind of thought it sucked. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know what? No, it didn't suck. It didn't suck. It was uh, just, you know, it, it wasn't the perfect world. My my life was fantastic. I I'm blessed with what I what I how I ended up in life. You know, it's just not going the way I wanted it to go. That's not the end of the world. You know, how often do people actually get that to happen? So. I got two decades of racing motorcycles for a living. What do I really have to complain about at the end of the day? So I would have liked to have keep kept riding. I think I still had some things to offer there, but um, you know, I I liked seeing and, and actually getting to talk to my wife during the race weekends a little. I liked getting to see her ride some. I enjoyed helping Corey Ventura and several other of the Junior Cup kids. You know, I like. I got to, I got to have a little bit, little bit different relationship with a few of the of the racers in the paddock. Like Cameron, uh, he talked to me a little bit more, seeing as how we were not competitors. I think he had a little bit of an easier time talking to me. And uh, I'm a big fan of Cameron too, and so JD, and uh, even even Garrett and I. I think we started a little slow, but the relationship in in our conversations got a little bit better as the season progressed, and. Uh, you know, some of it, I think, just took a little bit of time for him to to go down a road and figure out if it was right or wrong and then have some basis of comparison, which to talk to me about and, and go, OK, I can see some value in that or not and decide where to go with it. You know, Hey, Josh, I got to ask you from that point of view. So there are some writers and I'm sure you can agree with this that can't really explain or can't really teach what they do. But you've always been able to be pretty analytical about your writing, and, and also you've been able to help other writers a lot and are going to continue to do that. So what? why do you think some writers can't do that and some can? What's the difference? I don't know. Maybe maybe two things. One is I don't know if I just found a way sometimes to articulate it well in some areas, not all areas. In some areas, I could just articulate my thoughts 
clearly to somebody. Um, and then I think that there are, I, I think athletes in general, there are a lot of incredibly talented athletes that don't know why they're as good as they are. Mm-hmm. They just, you know, let, let's use a, a golfer or something like that. I, he, you know, I have to think so hard to keep it within a certain range, which is usually the fairway to the left to the fairway to the right. That's my range, right? Like, I mean, I don't mean my fairway. I mean the fairway that's left of my fairway and the fairway that's right of my fairway. To keep it in those bounds takes quite a bit of concentration mm-hmm. where there are guys who are so natural at it. They just say, oh, I just want to hit it down that way. I think I'm going to aim it at that little tree. And then they just bomb it right down there 300 yards or whatever they do because they, they just have a feel and a natural way of hitting the ball that makes sense. So um, a person who can hit a ball like that can't always articulate how he goes about doing it. He's just swinging the way it feels right to him. The job of the rest of us is to study that and figure out how he does it and try to articulate it to people who don't do that naturally and get them on the right plat on the right path. And motorcycle racing was a bit the same. I was not the most talented guy, but I wanted it really bad and I was willing to risk a lot to figure it out. And I had to figure it out in a few ways. And in figuring those things out, I learned a lot of lessons the hard way. And those lessons stuck. And I, I remember the process of how it went down and and what my, what the feeling was or the things I was thinking about during that process. And I, I see people, you know, because I, I lived a lot of the mistakes to get to the right place. I, I recognize them in other people and I can say, Hey, I've been down this road. This is why I did it a little different. And this is what I tried to do. And here's, here's a way to go about approaching, approaching it and see if you can get the same results I did. This year, when you had the test uh, with with this year, which tried, you guys tried to break the internet, I said that last week um, with uh, <laughs> Westby Racing, and you rode Matthew's bike, well, quite a few times this year, and I'm sure he talked to you about it as well. Um, he wanted he wants that Magneti Morelli electronics really bad. You came from a, an era when you didn't use a lot of electronics, certainly didn't use much TC to actually using it. You rode that bike. That bike has a stock ECU on it. You know, tell us what that was like and, and if you were able to help him. I, I Before you broke the bike, of course, but <laughs> go, go ahead and talk about that if you would. <laughs> um, I think what the Westby team wanted for me was basically an evaluation. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, we have a YEC system. I had ridden a YEC system a few times before when I rode with Yart. Uh, I'd ridden my wife's bike, a few things like that. And they wanted to compare it to, to, you know, someone who had ridden a bike with advanced electronics with the Magneti Morelli stuff on the factory team for a long time to say, hey, look, can we be competitive with this? Or, or, you know, there were quite a few times, I think, whenever Matt would get on the podium and he would look at every other bike on the podium, which were the two, one of the, one of the two of the four factory machines out there that had Magneti Morelli electronics on it and go, is that the reason they're beating me? And. So they just wanted me to give them an overall look of just what I thought on the system. So I think they already had it, the idea in their mind that they were going to go one direction or the other, but they just thought saw it as a good opportunity to get an evaluation. So um, riding their bike, it was a little bit of a, of a, I think all of us had this beautiful idea. It didn't go down like we had, like we had hoped that it would, that I would just be able to go out there and do laps all day long. Uh, unfortunately, with having a malfunction on the motorcycle, um, and then just 
you got a rider that's based around or a team that's based around one rider and now all of a sudden you throw two and two super bikes on the track that's pretty complicated bit of stuff so um it was fun to ride the bike it was hard because it had been december since i had ridden a motorcycle in anger um and so it was taking me a little bit just to just to get my head up to speed and i think i only got about 20 25 30 laps all day so uh tires have changed since i raced um they were using the big tire but also softer rubber the standard tires were softer than what we what our softest tire was last year things like that so it was quite a bit to take in uh also just learning a new machine and and you know based on matt's information but but the bike that i ended up riding ended up being a little bit different from matt's in a few ways and i just kind of passed along that information and quite honestly i'm not sure if they left more confused than when we started uh or not mm -hmm. but i i definitely had a few ideas and a few reasons of why i think x y and z and and honestly all i did was pass along some information and and time will tell you know it, what they what they do with that information i think they would like for me to to give them another opportunity to ride the bike and get get to a little more detail to what we had talked about which takes time uh, but you know it was hard to even get to the point where i was spinning the tire because i wasn't i, I just i hadn't ridden a bike with that much grip uh you know and power in quite a while and i had no idea how the electronics would react. I was trying to get to that point where I could figure that out, but I didn't know how they would react. So you don't just go out there and lean it over and pin it and see what happens. Did it did it tease you some more to want to return to racing? Did it did it kind of put some finality? Where where how do you feel about that at this point? I don't know. I think it 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 confirmed that you don't sit on the couch for a season and come back the same rider that you left. Right. right. <laughs> you know, I I definitely fit <laughs> Excuse me. I definitely didn't feel up to speed. Yeah. I definitely didn't feel what I would consider up to speed. And I, I, you know, there's no way I would have jumped on a motorcycle in a weekend, be winning races. You know, it would take some time. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, watching on the sidelines, I was able to see a lot of things that I felt like got away from me in the last year or two that made me successful. Um, and so, Whenever I was riding, I was able to think about, man, if I could do it over again, I would be working on X, Y, and Z. And one of the things that I, I would like with the with the YEC system was the simplicity that you wouldn't spend so much time working on that. And I could go back to focusing and working on my riding a lot, which was one of the things that I I spent so much time working on that made me successful. I got a question for you. The um the back to back to helping those kids. Um, when you when you were coming up. And I still remember, um, I can't remember if it was Super Sport or, or 750 um, Super Stock that you won uh, Daytona that kind of, you know, put you on the map. At least somebody like me who 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 had heard of yeah. you a little bit actually was like, wow, this this guy's somebody to watch. Did you have anybody that was helping you at all or were you just figuring it out on your um, own? So it was 750 Super Sport uh, at the time, uh, 1999. I had kind of grown into pro racing with John Norwich's Valvoline Suzuki team. And uh, yeah, we showed up at Daytona. I wasn't even supposed to ride 750, um, but Ryan Landers had gotten hurt. John Hopkins wasn't old enough yet. And so I just said, hey, listen, you're gonna have the 750. I'm supposed to ride 600 Formula Extreme. Do you want me to ride that 750 while it's here? And then I ended up having an epic weekend and winning the race at Daytona, my first like pro right. weekend, full, full, you know, working on my season. And, 
at the time, honestly, uh, of course, I, I can't say nobody was helping me that I was on my own. I was on my own in a sense, but I, 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 when I started racing as a, as a novice in Wera stuff, I teamed up with Grant Lopez who lived local to me and we traveled all the races together and helped each other, you know, and just made life a little lot easier because we were riding the same type of motorcycle and traveling to all the same places. So we were able to make it easier for both of us to, to do it rather than it just being a hobby that I did once or twice, a couple races and disappearing. So I, I had Grant as an example right in front of me and he might, there were some things I think he was a bit of an eccentric about, but for the most part, he had an attitude that was just like, I, I don't care. I'm just here to race. I want to race the fast guys. I want to beat them. I'll do whatever it takes. I just want to figure it out and I want to get there. And I, I had a lot of things that I got to see as an example from him that were embedded into me very, very early in racing. And uh, so I would say that, you know, that moved on to where I was competing against him all the way that, that four or five, six years up to my first pro race, you know, between him and Trey Beatty and a, a handful the list is long because back when I was club racing, doing, I say club racing, Wera, Wera Nationals, FUSA, these were big series with big grids of people racing in there. So I was getting a ton of racing experience, even at the amateur level. And, you know, I would say each of those guys that I was racing against were people I was learning from. And it was the same thing. My, my heroes in racing, I didn't watch or know anything about racing prior to me starting racing. So whenever I got to nationals, and I got on track with Rich Oliver, Miguel Duhamel, you know, Jamie Hackey and I had raced against some in the amateur stuff. But, you know, the, the list was so deep. Doug Chandler, Matt Maladin, like all these guys were out there. And I got on track with them in 600 Supersport. And these were my heroes that I was watching on TV. And all of a sudden I was on track with them. And I would see them do things on the racetrack and be like, oh, my God, you know, like I got to figure out how to do that. I, re I remember one one particular instance with Miguel where he did something uh, at, at Sears Point in front of me in 600 Supersport and I was just like all right well I guess if that's what you have to do to win Supersport <laughs> races I'm never going to make it my, my career I might as well pack it up and go home hmm. but you know I, I, I went back and hunkered down and said well I guess I'm gonna have to figure out how to do this if I want to do it and, and started working at it and so there was no there was no person in my corner standing over my shoulder watching me ride telling me what I needed to do that really didn't exist whenever I started racing. Everybody was out kind of figuring it out on their own. But at the time, there was a way to get a lot more experience prior to getting to pro racing. So right now we've got these junior cup kids that only have a year or two of motorcycling experience showing up to race junior cup at the national level. And they're racing, you know, to, to be able to do Moto America, they can't really afford to do a lot of club racing also. So they're doing nine races in a season and that's their experience level. And, and so I'm able to offer and bring something to them of 20 years of experience of racing a lot that, that hopefully I can help fast track them a, a few lessons. Let's that go I back to that way. 1999 Daytona race. Did that, did that surprise you as much as it surprised the rest of us? Um, I don't really know. You know, I, I don't know how to answer that question. Like, I, I, I don't know what my expectation was. I, I can't really honestly tell you. I think I was pretty pretty blown away to, to show up and win, right? I was more blown away by what I did in 600 Supersport. 600 Supersport was just flat out amazing to me, but that bike had, I loved that 600 at the time. I had, in 1998, I had won everything I touched 
on on that bike. And then I got to AMA Nationals and we show up at Daytona that very same weekend. And and I'm sure that the, the seven fifty race helped me, but I qualified on the front row. I qualified was it third? I think they put four on the front row. And it was Miguel, Rich Oliver, me, and then Nikki. And the next Suzuki had the number one plate on it. it was Steve Crevier, and he wow. was on row four. <laughs> so wow. I, I was, you know, that blew me away more than anything. I remember qualifying, rolling out with Jason Pridmore, Richie Alexander. Jason was a was a a friend. He had raced with me in in some wear stuff, and we just knew each other not well, but we had met and kind of talked a little bit. And he was being cool and helpful with me. And I rolled out with him because you remember they used to do uh, even numbers and odd numbers. They broke it into two groups for qualifying. And so we rolled out and Jason and Richie and I rolled out together. And I, by luck of the draw, drafted the two of those guys into turn one at Daytona to start my qualifying lap. And I remember getting into turn one and, and I thought that I'd lost the front or something. I drug the cases or something in turn one. And I was so afraid that I was holding them up that I was just going for absolute broke thinking that I, I was killing us, right? Like, oh my God, I'm, I, I messed up. I'm leading through the infield. I'm ruining everything. So I come out onto the, onto the West banking and I'm tucked in as tight as I can. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess they're just waiting until after the chicane and they're going to pass me to the finish line so that they can get the, get the lap time on me. So I cross, I, I cross, I, I make it through the chicane and I make it all the way to the start finish line. I go through turn one, I turn around and I'm by myself <laughs> and I go, oh man, I hope I didn't screw them up. <laughs> and I just pulled away and, and I was on pole at the time, you know, with 30 seconds to go, Miguel and Rich Oliver drafting together, go about getting the time they needed for pole. And, uh, it was, it was all pretty amazing. And, and the thing that probably was, was even scarier was John Ulrich was so blown away that he was, his, his wheels were turning and, and a guy who had been pretty hard edged with me was, was all of a sudden being really nice <laughs> to me. And I was a little, a little scared. Quite <laughs> <honestly>. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was that right there made things quite overwhelming for me when that happened. Josh, can you point to one race in your career, or can you say what was your greatest single race win in your career? Is there any that sticks out? Um, probably the one that stands out to me the most would be 2006 Formula Extreme at Mid-Ohio. Um, it was for the championship in Formula Extreme. We were racing against Eric Bostrom and Jason DeSalvo for the championship. Uh, you know, they were the factory Yamaha, basically superbike team. They they got a warm-up year in Formula Extreme with the R6 and then moved up to the R, R1 for Superbike. And, you know, Honda had a history of doing well in Formula Extreme, and they had decided not to run the factory team for the season. It was just going to be, you know, uh, Kevin Arian's team. And myself and Aaron Gobert were there. And we got to the last race. I'd finally started winning some races at the end of the season. I had been beat by Eric at that racetrack only a month prior that we showed up for the second race of the year. And I've never been more ready to go for anything in my life. And I went out and just put together a performance that I was extremely proud of and everything just happened like it was supposed to. And, and, um, 
it was uh it's one that I'm very very proud of that's cool you know I actually have one for you too it's not a single race but I'm trying to remember the year and you can help me I think it was 2013 but it was the double it was it was barber it was the year that Dane got the double in in Supersport, and I think you won both Superbike races. And it was ungodly hot that year. And I just remember that you came into that weekend, and you know, fitness was really important. And I was just blown away by the fact that you know you had such fitness and were able to come through and be so you know win those races. It was that thirteen. I uh, I remember thirteen being difficult because Josh Heron was riding he. He was riding really good. Uh, he had been out of the top 10, had followed me for one lap at qualifying and ended up P2. And in the race, I knew I couldn't get rid of him. So I had to just keep the pace at my absolute limit for the race distance and just get him to think about the gap behind us instead of the gap to me. I needed a mistake or two out of him and I had to try to pressure him from the front to do that. So. I do remember that about the the, the weekend, and I, I think I won both races uh, that year. Um, and it was always hot at Barber, so <laughs> it was probably hot that weekend. Too. Well, that, I think I think that might have been one of those years that we raced in like July. I, yeah. So, so, and then went from there to to. Oh no, that was 2012. We went from there to. I think to these trips Orleans down memory lane and, would be better if any of us had good memories. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, well, you need a couple more racers to to talk, you know, and and put it all in perspective. Oh, I remember this that weekend, and then we start remembering more and more things. Right, it's like my my mom always says that my dad can't remember like anybody's birthday, but he can remember like where he finished at Le Mans in you know nineteen sixty eight. Yeah, that well, attach an emotion to something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, so. that recall is pretty amazing. It, it is, um, Josh. You mentioned Heron. What, what do you think of? what he did this past year and where he's at now, he seems like a different racer than he was when he was your teammate. Do you, do you think so? Absolutely. I've told him so, you know, um, I think that, uh, I don't know, maybe Richard Stamboli was just the perfect attitude for Josh to have around him. Um, what I saw him do as far as just doing his own work is what I talked to him about as far back as, what 2012 um when we were teammates back then and i was like listen man like i'll i'll help you do all these things but you got to do you got to do the work you know you can't just follow people around because you're putting all this pressure on you to just pip them at the end to win and it's no way to win a championship if you want to be the guy that wins things and controls things you got to be able to do it on your own i don't think he understood too much i remember i remember being at uh at that test at New Orleans and him telling me, man, I'm trying to do this and I just can't find the lap time. And we talked about brake markers and all these different things. And he was just like, man, I, I hadn't had to think about racing like this before. You know, <laughs> it was an, it was a new concept for him and, and he struggled with it and it, it took quite a few years. And I, I think that here recently he has definitely grown up. His confidence in his ability to ride the motorcycle is unquestioned and now it's a matter of maybe Richard just giving him a job to do on the motorcycle or whatever it may have been. Their relationship seems to have been what has sparked him to go out and do these things. And now we see him doing some pretty amazing things. And uh, I've been I've been really pleased to see him do what what he's doing on racetrack. What do you think he's going to end up doing? Oh, what some? do you think he's going to end up doing next year? <laughs> 
Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to see him do. You know, I mean, I, I hear that he's in for the Yoshride. Um, and then uh, I think that there is still opportunity for him to continue with the attack program. So in in Josh's vision of the world, you know, which may or may not be popular or correct, in my vision of the world, I like what he's doing with Richard. Um, I th- like I said, I think Richard has been a very, very good thing for him. Look at what he's done this year. And given a full season starting prepared at, at race one, could be, you know, the best stuff we've ever seen from the guy. Um, as much as we all would want that Yoshimura ride, and as good for him as, you know, like the the idea of getting on a factory program like that sounds, based on what I've seen this year, I think he should stay put with Richard and continue the growth that he's doing because I think he can win from there. And it's mm-hmm. good for Richard. It's good for him. We need that team in the mm-hmm. paddock. And if if Richard were to lose Josh, from what I understand, there was potential sponsorship, but based on having Josh on the bike. And I would sure hate to lose that team because I think it's a quality one that we need in the paddock. So uh, as much as I want to see an American on that Yoshimura ride, uh, I, right. I hate to, to lose a team. And then now we've also seen, I, I think it also. was Road Racing World had a story and and actually, was uh, they quoted Stamboli that he that he he has talked to uh, to Marco Melandri as as a backup in case um, in case Josh does leave. So there there is a good opportunity that you know even if Josh does leave, that we don't lose that team, which would obviously be good. And I mean, having somebody like Marco Melandri in the series wouldn't be a bad thing either. Yeah, I mean, I I I see the uh, the benefits to having somebody like that in the series. I, I just. I'm I'm not wanting our series to become the the European series in America. I don't want this to be BSB in America. Right. <laughs> you know, I, it's not what I want. I want to see our American riders. I I think JD Beach has a resume that says he should be on one of these quality motorcycles, and the fact right. that he's not is disgusting to me. So have you talked to JD you know, lately? I, I don't know. Josh, have you talked to JD? You're close. I, to I mean, I what's he up to? I, yeah, I, I we haven't talked too much. Uh, here lately um i think he's still just trying to figure out what his program can and can't be i don't know too much i i honestly uh, i haven't you know i read a little bit of blurbs here and there and i have you of course call me weekly sean <laughs> to tell me all the gossip that you hear and and chuck chiquetto calls me about once a week to talk about all the gossip he hears oh you know everything that's what i hear <laughs> yeah i i know i know more than i want to but <laughs> You know, I, I don't I don't have a lot of uh, information. I, I I basically just point out to these guys like what I what I think they should be doing. I think that this is a time that's very difficult in road racing, and and it it is as much a popularity contest as it is about results. Results aren't the only thing. There was a time when results were enough. Um, there were enough rides out there that somebody was going to give you an opportunity, and right now it's not the case. So you better be playing all your cards right um, if you want these opportunities. So. Uh, I understand, uh, you know, I've been around long enough to see teams just want something new and exciting too. JD's been in our series for a long time. I was that guy. I had been in the support team system for 10 years and Keith McCarty finally gave me an opportunity and I finally got to show what I could do on a super bike. And we we were so close to never knowing because I was an old name because I'd been there for 10 years and just getting passed over because they wanted somebody new and fresh. Mm -hmm. So I hate that for JD. I think 
his resume from winning the Rookies Cup Championship in Europe to winning Supersport before when it was basically Superstock here in America to winning Supersport here in America. He's got some experience where he was fast on a superbike when he was a kid, and he's grown up a lot since then. And he's a winner on a dirt track. He's one of the most adaptable and lovable guys we have on in the paddock. And in my opinion, he's he would be my number one choice for the Oshimira ride, but that's not my decision. Massive work ethic on that guy too, right? I yeah, I mean, there's no question. He he's willing to work harder than anybody. I think he does. He's he's done it, you know, I think last year he did it to his detriment. He actually he actually worked himself into the mm-hmm. ground and did damage to himself because he was trying too hard. And and uh, you know, like that that goes a long way. I, I I don't know that JD would get on it and everything would be perfect from day one. But everything JD has shown me over the years is that if you can get him to win one race, watch out because then he starts steamrolling mm-hmm. and figures it out. And I've seen him do that, get beat down, and then fight his way back into it again. And being able to do that is very valuable. Well, you you, uh, you worked, um, Josh, this year with Corey Ventura, um, with Melissa's team. And, you know, he's 16 years old. He's been racing for a couple of years now. He's a little bit of a, a veteran, kind of. But what, what do you see in him? He And, he, and also, talk about what you think his pathway is going to be because – he seems like he wants to get on a 600. He wants to get on a bigger, you know, a, a thousand. You know, he seems like he really wants to push himself. Do you, wh- where is he at with that? Um, yeah, you know, I, uh, the, the junior cup kids that I was working with, Corey, I ended up spending probably the most time with because he did the program with mm-hmm. Melissa. And he came here and he stayed at our house a lot. And, and we, you know, it's funny, like our relationship changed a lot because, when he when he came to my house originally, here he was a, a a fifteen or sixteen year old kid who was going to stay at Josh Hayes's house, and he was like, Ugh. so I could barely get him to talk, you know. I, I I couldn't get him to to really give me much because he was just I think a little overwhelmed with the situation, and so we got a I got the opportunity to spend enough time around him that the relationship grew to to a friendship, and we got to talk very, very blatantly and honestly about a lot of things and and see a lot of things. And I got to experience quite a bit with him getting to go do the master camp at, at, uh, Valentino's ranch in, in, uh, Italy with him. And as well as see him week in and week out, helping with the cycling, helping with his motocross, like all these different aspects that we worked on. I got to see him take each of them and grow and improve with them. And especially with the road racing, you know, being there every day, this year the Yamaha was uh, was a, a little uh, outgunned in the Junior Cup. And to see him keep a positive attitude, talk about this is what you got to work with. You're not always going to have the best bike on the grid. You got to keep fighting. And to see him do that and, then at the, and, and learn a few things, learn a few things about himself and make the adjustment and the adaptation and become such a consistent contender in the second half of the season. I was really proud of, and it makes me think that, yes, he's a smart kid, he's a talented kid, and he does have it. So the, the still the big issue is the just lack of experience and the cost of getting that experience, what it is. It makes it very difficult for us to catch up with the guys that are doing it in Europe where it's more accessible. So um, as far as I know, uh, he is very excited. He wants to move up and race against the fast guys. I think that that's something that I really appreciate in him. 
because uh, it's how I felt when I was a, when I was a novice club racing. I would have turned expert in in a race or two if they had let me because I wanted to race the fast guys. I wanted to go race nationals before I was probably ready to go to nationals because I wanted to go race the fast guys. And I wanted to get out there, learn how to do what they were doing, but I couldn't do it if I wasn't out there with them is what I felt like. So I think Corey has a little bit of that attitude too, where he's like, I know I'm not going to walk out there and win these races, but I'm on the upswing. And while I'm, while I'm on the upswing, I want to go out there and learn everything that I can. And so um, I, I don't know what his path is going to be next year. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of things and talking uh, things up in the area is limited in in a few areas and and uh, has potential in others and I all of it is kind of above my pay grade on where it all where it all ends up and gets talked about so I kind of kind of got to it's all just just talk at this point so I know he's working on having a good program next year and we'll have to wait and see what. What plays out. Yeah, I talked to him earlier this week and we talked a little bit about super sport and he said that about he wants to ride a big a bigger bike and he even said, you know, um if I get a top ten in super sport, then you know I'm amongst the fastest guys in that, that group. So, you know, that's what he wants that's at least what he said he wants to do. Um He's a scrapper. I mean, I, I think that, you know, this year it was it it's so hard to to look beyond right now. Right. And so when we rolled out and the the Kawasaki 400 and that KTM 390 were so fast and the guys just were getting pummeled in those early races, it would be easy to just just give up the fight and be like, well, I'm just going to see where I place here and there. And, you know, because we're outgunned. Mm -hmm. But I never saw him do that. He he would actually do some some pretty good stuff. He would start out so fast and kind of set the bar on on how fast everybody could go, and then those guys would catch up using him as the as the example. Oh, I know we can go this fast, and then they'd actually kind of work their way to there and surpass it. He would get stuck, and then we worked on on a few things to help him continue improving, and that started to happen. And I mean, he's the only only Yamaha to win a race in the dry on the mm -hmm. season. And uh, was a podium finisher multiple, multiple times. And he saw a few guys that were doing a few things a little bit better and went about learning how to do that better himself. Jay Newton was quite the scrapper mm. this year, I think, on mm -hmm. Yamaha. Saw some good things from him. And I said, hey, man, you know, Jay's riding well, and he's fighting against those guys well. And if you don't start learning how to race against these guys better, that guy's going to beat you to the first win. And that was really motivating for him. And he and he. He started, we talked about what to, what, how to watch Moto3 races and World Supersport 300 races, what to look for and how to have a game plan. And then he was going to have to figure out how to apply it on the racetrack. And I saw him actually just go out and do it. He did his homework. He went out and he applied it on the racetrack. And so seeing those things, seeing that kind of growth and it, and it come to him in that way made me think, yep, this kid's, this kid's got a good chance. Of making Not it. to mention he's so polite and respectful. I mean, I, I have a story. I, I it, seriously, when I have a sto I have a story I have to tell about him because it, it pretty much sums you know sums up the way he was obviously raised and the way that he is. But I, a bunch of those KTM kids, when it was the KTM class, a bunch of them came up to the media center at Barber and they pulled the chairs out and they're all sitting there because they could watch TV and it was you know it was air conditioned and it wasn't a thousand degrees and they were watching the superbike race and and 
and then you know they all got up and left and and you can imagine that the the media center looked like you know kindergarten had just got finished and and there were <laughs> chairs and everything everywhere and i was i was actually still watching or or getting ready for the press conference or something and and i watched uh i watched Corey pick up all the chairs and stack them and put them against the back wall where they all came from and the rest of the kids were gone but he picked up after every single one of them and made that press room look like it did but when he showed up and and i was like you know that that's that, that's just a good kid i went and told his parents i'm like i don't know if he's going to turn out to be a great racer or not but you've raised a good kid there and and that and that's important and yeah he's he's always been respectful he's nice i ride bicycles with him and he's like oh my gosh thanks thanks paul for riding with me oh paul thanks for this thanks for that and it's you know it's not that common anymore I always got a kick out of when he would be he would be in the press conference and after he got done talking he would always end the press conference by doing what Paul? He'd say thank you Paul. <laughs> it was so good. Yeah, I mean nobody does that. So it, it was kind of nice, but uh yeah, I'm I'm hoping yeah. the best for him and and I think it's a refreshing attitude from these kids that they want to uh that they want to move up and they want to, you know, like like you did when you were young and 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 the Haydens and, and almost anybody that's been successful has had to have that drive that they want to race the best. And, you know, they're going to get their butts kicked for a while, but they're going to learn and move on. And that's the only way they're going to get better. They're not going to get better by just staying in Junior Cup forever. So it's good to hear that he's, uh, you know, that he wants to make that next step. He, he, Corey's been pretty funny. He, one thing that's good that I really like about Corey and this younger generation of people is he picks up on social cues. And, and a lot of these kids, I don't think, always pick up on all the social cues. And so with him being around Melissa and I and the group, you know, we all treat him like a little brother. We beat up on him a little bit, but we have a lot of fun. But he gets to hear us kind of behind the scenes, you know, talking and critiquing everybody and all the things that everybody does, but we don't like to right. say that we do, you know. And so it, it's funny to, to all the things that we make fun of on people's interviews and this and that, that he will pick up those things. And then he'll go about throwing something in his interview to make sure that we see it. And it's almost like a little bit of being the class clown and he's growing in confidence right. in doing it. You know, um, we've always made, you know, he's really close to Cameron Bobier too. And we always make fun of Cameron. I actually had a bet with Greg White at the banquet on if he interviewed him, how he would start the interview, you know, because he always asked Cameron a question in the press room on the podium. He's always like, yeah, totally. And then he gives you the answer yeah. every time. I never so caught I used that. To, I used to make fun of him so bad. Oh, yeah. oh my God. I used to make fun of him so bad because every time we had to get together for Yamaha and, and do things and they'd ask questions, he'd be like, yeah, totally. So Cameron, you had a really good season this year. Like, tell us about it. Yeah, totally. It was great, man. Let me tell you. And then he would talk. And and I I just, God, I ribbed him constantly about it. So so Corey started throwing some little things in like that. Yeah, You know, Cameron's always like, hats off to my crew. He says it every weekend. Hats off to my crew. <laughs> he did a great job. And Melissa was kind of give, having a laugh one day. She's like, you can't say hats off to your crew and not take your hat off. So at Barber. <laughs> or or be wearing one. At, 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 yeah, at Barber, Corey's standing on the podium and he's like, hats off to my crew. And took his hat off whenever he did it and looked right at me. I was looking around. Melissa had been throwing up in the garbage can during the race and couldn't make the podium. Uh. So she missed it. But, you know. But, you know, it was it was silly things like that that, you know, he's picking up on and having fun with and learning. Actually, he's paying attention, listening and learning. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, if you keep doing this, you sound like a robot and people don't want to hear it. So you start having a game plan and coming up with better stuff. So I'm seeing him, like, 
grab the mic right. and want to talk and work on it and get more comfortable with it. And, and he's, from what I see, without pushing too much, he's just picking up on, oh, okay, I heard Josh say, you got to work on this stuff because we got to play all your cards right. It's a popularity contest as much as it is results. And he just heard it and he's taken his own initiative to start working on this thing. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I keep blowing, blowing, you know, Corey's horn a bit right now, but I, I just, I see, I, I get to see it every day because I'm talking to him more regularly right. that I see him. I wonder where that hats off thing started and why. Uh, they heard it. They heard it from NASCAR the, or something. Knows, the MotoGP guys, the motocross Probably Rick, guys, NASCAR. Ricky Bobby or Ooh, I don't, I don't know. It's just every time I hear it, you know, it's funny. I'm... The other after Ricky Bobby, my thing was with all yeah. due respect. <laughs> yeah. Ricky Bobby, you can't say anything you want just because you say with <laughs> all due respect. Yes, yeah, I you can basically yeah. say it's with all due respectful. respect, you're a dickhead, and it's supposed to be okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's never respectful yeah. after with all due respect. You don't respect. know what the hell you're talking about with all due respect. The other one that always cracks me up is these guys on the podium. They'll they'll do they they'll say you know I can't thank so and so enough, but they'll go through and they'll go I can't thank. They'll have their list and they'll forget to say enough at the end. So they literally said I can't thank these people. So it's well, funny. I mean, there's a lot of things that um, racers do, and you uh, pick up on them over the years. And it's always like you know that one of the popular one is like you know I just rode my own race. And I always want to say, maybe yep. you should have ridden the guy yeah. that, maybe you should have ridden the guy <laughs> who beat you's race because it was a little fast. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm sure I had my own. And if anybody was paying attention, they could be like, oh, Josh always did this. You know what I mean? Like, you know, one of, but, one of the things, you know, Josh, I, Josh, one of the things you didn't do that a lot of riders do, and I, I've never told you this before, but a lot of riders go, so then I just put my head down. And you didn't really ever say that because it's kind of like, what, you didn't put your head down before that? I mean... <laughs> I never understood. I that only one. rode one way. <laughs> I only rode one way. I went as fast as like I'm. I'm cracking up when people are like, "Oh, shaving my tires until blah 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 blah." And I'm like, it was 24 laps. I rode as hard as I could from lap one, and I put the same effort in on lap 24. They were it was the same. You were just riding your it own didn't race. Change. <laughs> I went saving the tires. Like I figured. Hey, I'm going to ride so fast. We all have shit tires at the end. And let's see who could do that the best. Right. That was my plan. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. put the pressure on everybody else to do that. Worry about that crap. I'm just going to go as fast as I can. That's, I get teased because I say to be. I get teased because I say to be perfectly honest. I, and I, now I catch oh, myself yeah. saying, and I'm like, because uh, they're, they're like, what are you full of shit the rest of the time unless you say that? And I'm like, probably. <laughs> yeah, to you be perfectly honest. You do say that a lot, Paul. Paul, you do say that a lot. To be yeah, I need to honest, stop. Do say that a lot. I need to. I need to talk my own race. <laughs> hey, hey, Josh, I've got a question for you. I, uh, I, I remember last year, um, you had you'd talked to Wayne a couple of times about you know what was going on with classes in the series, and you know then this year, so we had Twins Cup and we had Stock One Thousand. What did you think of those two classes? Um, and you raced in Weiris, so you know I think you're a good one to comment on those, bringing those in. What, what, what's your assessment? Uh oh. God, man, why you gotta put me on the spot? Well, Twins Cup. Let's start with um, that. It's it's. I, I don't. I I don't, I, I don't, don't think it was what, what you say. thought it was going to be. Was it? Uh, no, it, it was exactly <laughs> what I thought it was. Okay. Be. Well, there you go. The the problem is I don't know if it was what it was meant to be. Okay. That's that's what I don't know. You know, like I I it the feeling I got. To, to make racing good doesn't mean you need more classes. 
to me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you need bikes on the track every every minute that we're at the race for three days straight. For me personally, I would rather see us put a premium on track time for the for the big show that you're there to see. I'd rather give them more time than than just put more classes on the racetrack. I I I think at this time pro racing is not what's broken amateur racing is what's broken and now we've basically taken a few amateur races and ingrained them into our pro racing arena Mm -hmm. and there's not enough dollar bills you know you're you're, i I don't know the answers i don't know if you're diluting the the guys from going to the big class because now they have this introductory class to do it but it's it's hard for me to build these as pro classes when if it the feel of the classes we're trying to get the locals to come take part in the nationals, right? We go to their area and people who are racing these bikes, these classes are big. These are the guys we just need them to show up and they're not quite getting enough experience in their region that they can show up, you know, like they did back in the day. You remember uh, Robert Jensen used to show up when we came to Brainerd and a few of his local races. He was club racing for a living, chasing contingency money, and he would show up to an AMA national when there was 15 paid guys on the grid and finish, you know, in the seventh to 12th range. He got into those, those guys that were paid to race and he wasn't doing pro races. We, he just did it when we came to his area. Right. So Jason Farrell was like that, that little that, too. That, yeah. Yeah. They, that doesn't exist anymore. Right. You know, like, because the, the level is so much different. Those guys can't show up to a, a super bike race and get in with the paid guys. And because they don't have enough experience at their local stuff, they're not able to do enough racing and race quality, you know, the, the racing quality isn't high enough that they're just gaining the experience and building their crew, learning their craft to be able to go and bring that to a national and, and show what they can really do. And, and, uh, so it's just a different time. And I think that, uh, that, I mean, I want everybody to be able to come and take part in a Moto America event that wants to take part in those events and and in the series. But I want you to to do it properly. I want you to build your craft and I want you to put together the right program and show up to the couple races in your area with the best of everything that you could possibly bring and put on your very best show in your lo- in your local area. I want your stuff to look good. And I want you to, to ride with all your heart and see where you really stack up. And then if you can do that well, you say, okay, I'm going to put the whole season together. And you show up and you, you don't show up with a, I'm going to, I'm going to be a play budget on tires. You're going to show up and you're going to buy the allotment of tires and you're going to do it properly. You know, you're going to get some help. You're going to do, do the right things to make it work. So um, maybe these classes are a good introduction of what it's going to take to go about doing that. Um, but I, you know, I think sometimes it's going to take a little time for classes to grow. Uh, I think we we didn't have enough people do the entire series. We had people in their area come and do some races, and and but now that they see that they are the the least expensive classes to do, based on only being on track a handful of times a weekend and the tire budget being considerably smaller. So um, hopefully we'll get a few more of them out there and, and experience it and go, man, okay, I know what I need to work on so that I can show up and do this on a more full-time gig because we do need more quality racers that 
at all of these nationals. You know, I think some of the writers have different motivations. I mean, I, talking with Chris Parrish, you know, he's 41. He doesn't have any aspirations to necessarily move up, but he enjoyed kind of, you know, the summer going around and, and going to some of these tracks and he's going to come back next year and defend, you know, he's going to have that number one on his bike. But you take somebody like Andrew Lee. I mean, I think he really used Stock 1000 as a possible springboard to do do more, possibly get into Superbike. You know, so there's an interesting thing there. I think some of these guys can advance with it. Do you think so? Yeah, I mean, to me, I look at, at Stock 1000 and I see it more streamlined with where we're going, right? The, the hungry people who are wanting to get to nationals at their local races are riding you know, the 600s class and they're riding the 1000 class. So that is a, is a more realistic and a linear introduction into our series. And so seeing those guys show up in that series, I felt like it was a little more competitive than the twins, um, on a more, more, a couple more guys showed up for the entire series and, and you got to see them learn and grow and they had comparable bikes to them. I, I, I say comparable because a, a 1000 stock machine in this day and age is closer to a superbike than it was back in the day but they they get to see like motorcycles on racetrack and the lap times the sectors and what they're doing and see where they can build and grow so it just seems like a little more of a streamlined streamlined thing uh with the stock 1000 class all right i got a question for you josh um without asking you what you're going to do next year because i'm not sure you know um what if 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 josh hayes could do whatever josh hayes wanted to do next year what would that be of course i'd be racing a supercross right <laughs> you know yeah sure yeah no no jd and i tried yeah. that last year didn't go yeah well. i remember that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um no, I mean I I love racing motorcycles. So if I could if I could be out there uh racing the superbike, you know, that that would be my first the first thing that I would love to do. Uh I don't I unfortunately it's just not that realistic. And if the right people got behind it, man, I would I would fight hard for it and I would go out there and ride the best that I could. I don't know how it would go cuz I don't know that I'm the same guy that that got off of a motorcycle a couple of years ago. I have some ideas on what I could do to improve a few areas. But like I said, you don't go sit at home for a year and then come back. I remember when everybody was all excited like Ben Spees was talking about coming back. I don't care what you say. Your guy doesn't go sit at home for 4 years and come back the same guy that he left. It just doesn't work that way. So um but that would be a lot of fun, you know. Um whatever else might happen. I, I I don't have any idea. You know, like I can't imagine not being at the racetrack. It's been a, a, a second home, an extended family for 25 years, and I want to be at the racetrack. I want to be a part of it in some way, shape, and form. And it's funny because for the first time in that many years, I don't I don't know that I'm going to have a place there. So, uh, unfortunately with Yamaha continuing to shrink, um, I think I'm going to be able to keep a, a good tight relationship with Yamaha, but I don't know that I'm going to have a purpose for them at the racetrack, at least not s throughout the entire series. I think it's select events that they will have some, some use for me there. So, um, I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, I can find some way 
whether it be working with riders, working with being sports, working with Moto America, working with team, you know, anybody, I could find some way that uh, I have a purpose uh, to be there and, and be a part of the show because it, it means a lot to me Can you that type? the show does well. <laughs> no, I'm not very We don't type. need any more You've typers. seen my hands. That, I, I mean, if, if you can days, type but, decent, I'll give you Sean's job. Later. I was going to say, I thought you were headed there. <laughs> oh, no. He can't. I, I peck at a keyboard. Hell, I, I could dictate. Yeah, we got enough. We got enough he's, dictators. <laughs> yeah, he's a dictator. No doubt. Dictators. Yeah, he's got that. Cap, he's got that Captain Hook little finger that isn't going to be able to go on a space bar anywhere. Oh my god, dude! I never learned how to type, and and like my hands are terrible. I haven't opened my laptop up in in really a week and a half. So you haven't been. Well, you, you do. You know what? I've got to. I've got to tell you. It might have been too little too late, but your social media was a little more on point this year than it was in years past. And I understand, you know, you're focusing on racing and, and this and that. But, you know, I just had to get that little dig in there. But, uh, no, this year I was pretty impressed with it. Well, I get beat up a lot about my social media, you know. But that being said, I'm, I'm, I'm just not, like, I don't know how to explain it, man. All these people, like, who takes all these pictures for these people? <laughs> I don't, I'm not surrounded by an entourage of people and I'm not asking them to take my picture and I don't stop to take your pictures because I'm busy. Your wife's doing busier stuff. than you and she so does a good I, job I with social media. I know. Well, she's a pro at it. I don't like putting my life out there for people. Yeah. I like, I, it's mine. Right. It's all you've got. <laughs> I don't, I don't need everybody to know what I'm eating for breakfast. Right. You know, like, and when I do something fun and, and, you know, I do something that's worth talking about, I try to put it out there for people to, to get to see it. But, you know, like I'm pretty lucky. And, and if I just put up pictures of my life every day, I'm at the golf course today, I'm riding dirt bikes today, I'm riding my road bike today. Oh, I feel like I'm showing off. Yeah, I know. You know, I, I know how lucky I am. I don't need to tell everybody else how lucky I am. I feel like, I mean, and I don't know. I just do me a it, favor. You know, in that, some ways it doesn't feel right. You know, that number you know? six on the list of things we're not supposed to talk about. <laughs> don't do photos of that. Yeah, we don't want to see that. Nope. Nope. <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to go back. We're going to wrap this thing up because I know Josh has a has his little boy there running around. And I think the nanny's going to have to leave soon and he's going to have to take over, which worries me to no end that, uh, for the kids. Did we, safety. did we, did we leave subjects? Did we leave subjects untouched? Do oh, we need yeah. to do this again next week? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. We'll, yeah, yeah. We'll, uh, you know, you're going to be our go-to guy when we can't get anybody else. Of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. I don't I think Chuck, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, what's going to happen is I'm going to do my own podcast. You guys yeah, Will you invite us on ever? Yeah, or not? yeah, please, please have us as a guest. <laughs> yeah, please. absolutely, absolutely. Okay, the one thing I got to do because that's how I'll make a living. The one thing I got to do before we say goodbye because I got in trouble because I haven't done it yet. But how if you like what you hear, please subscribe on whatever whatever method you're using it. Um, if you don't like us, just go ahead and subscribe anyways because it might keep us in job. So I want to thank Josh Hayes for joining us today. He's uh, he's been a good buddy of mine for a long time and i'm old enough to actually have seen him race in the very beginning which i'm not too proud of but at least i'm still i'm still uh i'm not pushing up daisies yet so and sean um again uh, yeah. nice having you and uh we'll do this again next week and and like i said uh josh you're uh, you're more than welcome anytime 
you've always got good things to say and you've got a lot of knowledge. And I think sharing that knowledge with, uh, with our listeners is a good thing. Yes. Thanks for having me guys. Good stuff for sure. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Paul. All right, you guys have a good day. Take care. Bye.